Malachi, but the main point through all of Malachi is worship. It starts out with, with God declaring his love for his people, and then it ends with God giving hope and some fear for the future. And we're going to see some of that today, but that's how it ends, that the Lord is going to come back. He's going to set everything right. And everything in between is what we're doing in life now, which we would call worship. And so our big point last week, because we were looking in Malachi and the people were sacrificing. This was still under the Mosaic law and they were supposed to sacrifice their best to God because of who God is. Our response from the heart is love and worship, which means we bring him our best. They were bringing animals to sacrifice that were sick, that were, you know, they wouldn't last the winter. So they'd sacrifice those who were blind, lame. They were bringing those kinds of animals and sacrificing. And God said, I'm not even going to accept that. Because I know your heart, your heart isn't in that. You're just doing this religion. And so that's what Malachi is all about. The people are going through the motion of worship, but their heart isn't in it. And uh, can Christians do that too? (laughs) Can we do that too? Go through the motions. We can look good. We can even do this while we're singing, (laughs) but yet our heart is just not there. We can come in here and pretend, but God doesn't care anything about our ritual. He doesn't care anything about our religion. He cares about our heart. And when our heart is right toward God, it will result in actions, but he cares about the heart. And so that's what he's been talking about in Malachi. And that's what we're going to be going through. Um, And our big point today is what you sacrifice to God proves what you truly think of God. Think about that. What you sacrifice to God proves what you truly think of God. So what do you truly think of God? Because we can say and even believe maybe in our own heart that we think of God a certain way. But look at what you actually sacrifice in your life for God. That proves where your heart really is. And that's what we're going to see. Our big verse in the last two weeks and our big verse as we go into our next all-in series. So it's our big verse for about two months. Uh, you should memorize it. We're going to have some sticky notes that have it on there to memorize it. Uh, Kelsey summed it up in her version on the coffee board there. But it's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do we have that? Um, and what I want to do, like we did last week... Let's read this together so that we all get it. So one, two, three. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And Kelsey sums it up, stop conforming, start transforming, Um, which I like, that's great. But it's all our worship. Now, what is it, uh, it, if you wanna look over there, there, that's Bob Burroughs in the back left. He's uh, one of my mentors, probably my main mentor. But we we met this week and we were talking about this verse. And he pointed out that this is the only uh, the only thing in scripture that doesn't exactly line up. And that's a living sacrifice because a sacrifice by its nature is dead. And so we are called to be a living sacrifice. We don't go kill ourselves for Jesus. We're called to be a living sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice. He died for us. He lives in and through us. That's the Christian life. If we don't know that it's not us working hard for God. It's Jesus living his life in and through us. That's the Christian life. And so our response is I'm dead to self and alive to him. I'm a living sacrifice. And that's my counsel. If I ever talk to, to couples struggling, kids struggling with parents, that's the whole thing. Why are you struggling? Because you're alive. <laughs> you know, go into a, a, a graveyard and say, everybody here who wants dinner, raise your hand. 
You know, nobody's going to, they're all dead. They have no, no needs. They have no desires. They have no wants. Their will is gone. And that's how we are to be, but living, but that's a problem. Um, being a living sacrifice is hard. And so we're going to look at what that would maybe be like. We're going to, we're going to do a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, right? Uh, no, no, no. Bear with me. Altar. Sacrifice. So here is our living sacrifice. Yeah, this is Harold. And we are going to place a living sacrifice on the altar to God right there. there no, no, no. So, the, whoa, okay, okay. Living sacrifice on the altar to, okay. Do, do you, do you, do you get the point? Are you, are you seeing that? Okay, stay. That sacrifice. Okay, there we go. We've got our sacrifice on the altar. The living sacrifice is staying on the altar. Excellent. Good. So this is sometimes our life, right? As a living sacrifice. Uh, uh, uh. He's not having it. There we, frog legs. Oh my goodness. I, shh, close your, I'm so, she didn't mean that. You're a living sacrifice. Okay. <laughs> but you get that. We are a living sacrifice. What's the problem with a living sacrifice? It keeps crawling off the altar. Life happens and we crawl off the altar. We lay our lives before God. We're all yours. And then we walk out of this building and life happens and we go, eh, I'm mostly yours and I'm some mine. Eh, I want this. I want that. Okay, so it's some you, it's some me. But a living sacrifice is dead all the time. And that's what we're going to look at. Stay. That's what we're looking at this morning. Because if we're to be a living sacrifice, how do we do that? What's the evidence of a heart truly in love with God? Because that's what I said. Our main point today is what you sacrifice to, to God proves what you truly think of God. So what do we sacrifice to him? Turn to Malachi with me, please. The easiest way to find it is either in the index in the front, look up Malachi, that's fine. Or go to Matthew, go to about here, okay? And then turn back a couple pages. So Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, Go back a couple pages, and this is Malachi. Malachi was written about 400 years before Jesus, roughly, and it was the last word from God to his people before Jesus came. There was this 400 years of a silent period. This is the last thing he said to his people. I think that's significant, before the Messiah came. And in this, he gives predictions about the Messiah coming. But in this time, they were sacrificing, but like I said, their sacrifice wasn't heartfelt. For the most part, they were going through the motions. They looked good. They were religious, but their heart wasn't in it. And so God came down fairly hard on them. Um, turn to chapter three. We're going to be in Malachi three, verses one through 12 this morning. And let me pray before we get into the word. <laughs> Jesus, you have it written in your word uh, that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And that's Old and New Testament. This is your word. It's God breathed. You breathed out these words. You used human authors, but these are your words. They're without error. We know that. 
And I pray that as a sword that would pierce soul and spirit, joint and marrow, that your word would pierce our souls. That we wouldn't feel guilty. We might feel convicted, but that we would feel your spirit, that you would communicate to us, that we would fall deeper in love with you and take the proper steps to respond to that love that we have for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at Malachi 3.1. Behold, this is God speaking to his people. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, there's a lot in this one verse and it kind of sets up what's coming next. He says, behold, I send my messenger. In this verse, there's actually two messengers. There's two messengers referred to in this one verse. The first one is John the Baptist. And we see him referred to later in chapter four. But there's going to be one that comes crying in the wilderness, make way the, straight of, uh, make way the path of the Lord. He's also referred to that Elijah will come first. And Jesus referred to John the Baptist saying, didn't Elijah come? John the Baptist was a figurative Elijah who came paving the way for the Messiah to come. So that first messenger is John the Baptist. It says, and he will prepare the way before me. It's exactly what John did. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Who owns the temple? God the Father, Yahweh. And we'll see that word Yahweh anytime in your Bible. Um, it's L-O-R-D caps. And you see that at the end of, of verse one. That's God's personal name Yahweh that he gave to Moses. And it just means I am. I mean, it's not even really a name. It's just, I am what I am. God just is. You can't put him in a box. He is. That is who is going to come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, we'll stop there. <laughs> Here's the second messenger, the messenger of the covenant. This is referring to the covenant given to Abraham. Abraham, God appeared, God came to Abraham and he promised to bless him. He promised three blessings in that covenant, land, the area of Israel, seed, many descendants, and blessing, that they would be blessed by God and they would be a blessing to the nations. That's the covenant. Jesus was that blessing to all the nations. You and I, most of us aren't Jews by birth, are we? But yet we can be considered God's chosen people. That's part of the blessing God promised. So that's this covenant. So he, he, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is Jesus. And it says he will come to his temple. Jesus, when he was a baby, was brought to the temple to be dedicated. And there was a priest there who had been promised that he wouldn't die until he saw the coming of the Lord. And so he got to hold the baby Jesus. I mean, it kind of gives me chills, but Jesus as a baby came to the temple. God, the one who created everything, came to his temple, humbled as a little baby. But then when Jesus began his ministry, one of the first things he did was he went to Jerusalem and he walked in the temple and he kicked butt. <laughs> he walked in there and they were selling stuff. I probably shouldn't say that. They were, they were selling things. They made the temple um, a business place and they were using it for profit. And he went in there and made a whip. We talked about this a couple months ago and whipped and chased everybody out of there. He came to his temple. So this could be referring to either or both of those events that Jesus, God in flesh came to his temple. Verse two and three. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi 
and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. When he's coming, it says, who can stand before him? In verse one, it refers to the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. What that is saying in verse one there is that they had this view of the messenger when he's coming and of the covenant that they would, what they would receive when they, he came is blessing and just blessing. That they were God's chosen people. Remember when we looked at Jonah, Jonah struggled with that too. He thought they were God's chosen people and the heck with everybody else. So they thought God was coming to bless them and their ritual was all that really mattered, not their heart. And God says, no, you delight in his coming, but when he comes, for a lot of you, it's gonna be hard. It's not what you expect. And when he comes, it says he's gonna be like a refiner's fire and a fuller soap. Who can stand? This morning as I was going over this, and I got to the, the who can stand, I, I couldn't help but think back anytime anybody is faced with God. When Moses saw the burning bush, when uh, Isaiah received his call from the Lord, when John the Baptist, or I'm sorry, not John the Baptist, the apostle John in Revelation was faced with the Lord in his vision. Every time they fall down in fear, in silence, in awe, every single time, any pride in a human is gone when faced with God. When Jesus comes, when God comes, all, who can endure? Who can stand? Our pride is gone. And he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Now we're gonna see in this passage that the Messiah is gonna do two things. When the Messiah comes, he's gonna do two things. And we know he did one when he came the first time. When he's coming again, he's gonna do the second. And a lot of times in the Old Testament, there's a prophecy that would have a near fulfillment, far fulfillment. And sometimes you don't even fully understand it till it happens. But Jesus came once, but he didn't set up the kingdom like they thought he was going to do. He had to deal with the heart first. When he comes back, he's going to deal with the kingdom. When he comes back, he's going to deal with judgment. The first time, though, he came as a, as a uh, refiner of gold and silver. That's what it talks about. Um, with the refiner's fire, he's like a refiner's fire or, or a fuller soap. And so this is in your notes. Jesus' first job was to cleanse sinners. Because what does God want? He wants heartfelt worship. He doesn't want ritual. So many people who claim to be Christians and even Christians do the ritual, the religion of church, of small group, of all that stuff. And God says, I don't care about that. Remember we saw in Psalms last week, he says, I, don't care. I would sacrifice to you. David wrote this, but you don't want sacrifice. What you want is a broken and contrite heart. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. And so God had to do something to make that possible first. He had to deal with our hearts. And that's where the new covenant comes in. Jeremiah talks about that new covenant. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to change your hearts. I'm going to take hearts of stone, make them hearts of flesh. That's what Jesus did the first time by dealing with sin. His first job was to cleanse sinners. And he says that he's a refiner's fire. So here in Nevada, we're the silver state, right? So how do you get silver? You dig out of the ground all this ore and then you crush it. Painful. <laughs> you crush the ore get it to like dust from what I understand. And then it goes into the refiner's fire. Then you heat it up and the hotter it gets, the, the silver will melt. And then you can take out all the impurities and you heat it up, take out the impurities, heat it up, take it. I actually watched a YouTube video on this and somebody was, they took all this junk jewelry and stuff and they, they heated it up and they made this little bar. And then he said, now there's, there's still some impurities and look, it's not great, but if we melt it down again, we'll get more off. Melt it down again. He said, after the third or fourth time, this will be a nice looking bar of silver. That's a refiner's fire. Heat up, take away the impurities. Heat up, take away the impurities. The fuller 
I didn't know what a fuller was. A fuller is a launderer, somebody who does laundry, someone who takes dirty white clothes and makes them really white clothes. But what they would do to do that is they would use a lye, a very harsh soap made of lye, and they would wash the clothes, but then they would lay them out on a rock and beat them with a stick. I don't know why. But that, I, I, don't, I didn't do the research to see what that does to clean it, but that's the process. The point that he's making is the cleansing that the Messiah would do when he came was both thorough and intense. Thorough and intense. Removing all the impurities, making it totally clean, and he would do the work. What did it cost God to do this? What did it cost God to deal with sin? cost him his son. Now we're going to look at that in a minute, but first we want to see why would he do this? What's the result? The result we see there is that righteous offerings will be offered. That's the result. In the end of verse three, they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. That's the opposite of what the people were doing. They were bringing offerings, but not in righteousness. They were bringing them for selfish reasons. They were bringing junk to God. They're leftovers, not their best but he wants them to bring their best. So he's going to do this so that he's glorified. Do you get that? The main goal is that he's glorified. He'll cleanse sinners so that he's glorified. He'll remove our impurities so he's glorified. And there's two parts of this. There's the penalty for sin. There's the sin. And then there's the sinner. And sin was dealt with on the cross. Done. Done. You were washed clean. God looks at you and he sees Jesus. Look at yourself. I mean, I don't want us to dwell on our sin, but you know your heart, right? God looks at you and sees Jesus. If by faith you've accepted Jesus as Lord, that should put you on your knees. It brings me to tears at times that I, because of what he did, am forgiven. Look with me at, at 1 Corinthians 6.11. First, don't turn there. I think it's going to pop up here. But 1 Corinthians 6.11, it had just listed a whole bunch of sins, awful sins. And he says this, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. Sanctified means set apart for a purpose. We were washed and set apart for God. You were justified. Justified means made right with God. Done deal. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the spirit of our God. There's nothing you do to earn forgiveness. People think they need to get clean before they come to church. It's never going to work. First you come to God, then he cleanses you. And he will forgive you immediately because of what Jesus did. It was harsh on Jesus. We know what he endured on that cross. There's the cross there to remind us what he went through to clean us. And so that's the first part. He dealt with our sin and he made us clean. There was a, uh, a boy who, who took a test in class. And it was, I think it was a math test, probably something like that, to where he'd do the problem and erase it and do it again and erase it until the time was about to run up, the time had ran up, and his page is just unreadable. It's just all blotched and messed up. And, and of course, he's scared and he's in tears and, and wondering what to do. So he walks up to his teacher and asks for a new one. And here's a poem that that elementary school teacher wrote. He came to me with a quivering lip. The lesson was done. Have you a new sheet for me, dear teacher? I've spoiled this one. So I took the sheet, all spoiled and blotted, and I gave him a new one, all unspotted. And into his tired heart I cried, Do better now, my child. I came to the father with a trembling soul. The day was done. Have you a new day for me? 
dear master, I've spoiled this one. So he took my day all soiled and spotted and he gave me a new one all unspotted and into my weary heart he cried, do better now, my child. What he did for us to set us clean, to make us right cost him everything and it cost us nothing. And I'm overwhelmed just as I think that as I look at my days and I look at, at my tendency to wander, my tendency to, as a living sacrifice, jump off and walk, but yet I'm still forgiven. <laughs> yet his forgiveness is, is thorough. I know when I stand before him, he's not going to bring up my sin. He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he's going to bring me in, not because of anything I've done, but because of everything he has done. That's the first part. That's the first part. But then there's the second part. There's the second part. That's justification. The next is progressive sanctification, which is the process by which he removes our impurities. Who here, raise your hand, when you turned your life over to Jesus, you were perfect immediately, all sin gone. Raise your hand. No, okay. It's a process by which he refines us and makes us more and more like Jesus. We're forgiven but then we need to be changed and he changes us. And often that is harsh for us because what is it in your life that makes you most like Jesus? Going through pain, right? Going through suffering, sacrificing for him and seeing him show up. That's what does it more than anything. So it can be intense for us. Hebrews 9.14 talks about this part, this part of what the Messiah would do. Hebrews 9.14 says, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's referring to the process where he will purify us so that we can be what Malachi says we would be. We would, have, we would give offerings, offerings of righteousness to God as we remove our sin, as he removes our sin. This is in your notes. Jesus' work on the cross dealt with both the penalty of sin and the enslavement to sin. Jesus' work on the cross provides immediate forgiveness for all sin for the one who repents and turns to Jesus. There is then a process of progressive sanctification by which Jesus removes our impurities and sin leading to a heart change in authentic worship. But Jesus has another job to do and Malachi had to talk about this too. Look back at verse five. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So he will cleanse sinners, but those who don't turn to the Messiah, those who don't turn to God and repent, he will judge. And his judgment is, is also thorough, intense, and even harsh. He will thrust them aside and look at the sins that he talks about. These are things that they were doing. These were things that the religious people were doing. They looked good on the outside. They were bringing these sacrifices that if you're watching, it looks like it might be okay. They know it was junk. They know it was their leftovers, but the others didn't know that. And they're bringing these things. And then they're going out and they're being harsh to those who work for them. They're not taking care of the widow and, and orphans around them. And God says, for those of you who don't fear me, because that's proof that you don't fear me, you're doing whatever you want, I'm going to judge you. Your actions are proving you don't know me 
and you will be judged, says the Lord of hosts. Remember, that's the Lord of, of heaven's armies. He is coming to judge those and point out who do not fear him. He judges the unrighteous wicked who do not fear him. God is patient. The New Testament says, not wishing any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why he's waiting. But he will come back or we will die before he comes back and stand before the judgment. But the judgment is coming and a good loving God tells us that. He wants us to know I'm grace, gracious and merciful, but the time is coming where I will not be able to overlook it and I will have to judge. He already judged it all on Jesus, but those who don't accept that sacrifice will receive their judgment. Look at verse six. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Because the judgment is coming and time is limited, the proper response is to repent and follow Jesus. Return, come back. God does not change, that says. He's the same now as he was then. Our response when faced with him, what Jesus did for us is grace and mercy and the judgment coming is to repent and to turn back to him. And let's apply this to us at this moment. We're gonna move on, but don't we do the same? Don't we go through the same outward appearance of religion, but not heartfelt worship? Uh, Paul is going to come sing. He's gonna share a story and, and, and apply this in kind of our, our modern context. And then we're gonna finish the passage we're looking at. Matt Redman is a fairly uh, famous worship leader. It has been for several years. Has a church in Great Britain and uh, they were growing very quickly. Had a lot of people coming because they had a really good band. And people wanted to come hear Matt Redmond lead worship. And the pastor and Matt had a meeting where they realized that they were just going through the motions, that they, had a, they were drawing a really great crowd, but there was not real worship happening. That it was all about going through the motions and seeing the, the great band and, and singing along with them or telling their friends, hey, I saw Matt Redmond this week, instead of really experiencing who God was and responding to who God was. And so they made a kind of radical decision they stopped all musical worship in their church. And they did that for a season of time until the church realized what worship really was. It was about uh, being a sacrifice. It was about who God is and what he's done and how we can respond to that with our whole life. And so during this kind of silent period of their church, Matt was continuing to write, continuing to worship uh, personally. And he wrote a song that's become pretty... Uh, pretty much a cornerstone for a lot of worship, uh, a lot of people. It's called the heart of worship. And the first song that they sang when they came back and started having musical worship again was this song, because it really describes the journey that they went on as a church and what they realized <coughs> that true worship was. And so I wanted to share that with you today. Music fades. 
all is stripped away and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart I'll So the people are faced with this. And God says through his servant Malachi, he says, return to me and I will return to you. And they say, how? How do we return to you? Looking in uh, verse seven, where he says, fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have, kept, have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. They say, how shall we return so their question is, what have we done? It's kind of a facetious question. They're saying, we haven't turned away. Look, we're still doing all this religion. How have we turned away? And then he hits them. And he says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. 
Now that word rob is actually a word that means to take by force. It's not just a, a pickpocket. This is a violent robbery. This is uh, sticking somebody up at gunpoint or at knife point or at that time at club point, whatever. This is a, a, a mugging. This is a mugging. He said, you have mugged God. They say, how have we mugged God? I mean, are you kidding me? The God who made everything? How can you actually, you gotta be kidding me. You can't mug God. He said, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. He says, you have been robbing me through their tithes and offerings. If you have ever heard a sermon on giving, you've heard these verses. <laughs> this is uh, every pastor's favorite place to turn. It's the only place in scripture where God says, test me. But this, they said, okay, we think our religion is good. We're waiting. And he says, no, your religion's not good. I want you to return to me. And here's the proof. You stopped giving your tithe. You stopped bringing in. You stopped giving generously like you were supposed to. What is the tithe? The tithe was commanded in the Old Testament law, in the Mosaic law. A tithe literally means a tenth, a tenth. And here's what it, it was written in, in Leviticus 27, 30 and 32. This is the law for the Jews. It said every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that passes under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. This, this was in, just like any society, it was all about the agriculture, what they could grow, their vines, what they could raise, their sheep, their animals. And the first 10% was always to go to God. So they, they, have, they have their flock and they would actually put a staff out as they pass under. And then you go, every 10th one, take that one aside. That one goes to the temple. That one goes to God. Keep passing. One, two, three, nine, tenth one goes. Same thing. They would then take the, if they grew grapes, let's bring in the grapes. Okay, let's weigh it. Okay, there's 10 pounds, one pound over here. Weigh another 10 pounds, one pound over here. That was what they were commanded to do, a tenth. When they received it, they would give that. And that would go, as you see, to the support of the temple. Numbers 18, 21 says this. To the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, I'm not gonna go a lot into it, but when the Jews, there were 12 tribes, there were 12 tribes, there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, ish. <laughs> but there were 12 who would receive inheritance when they came into the land. So they conquered the land of Israel, the promised land. When they went in, they took it over and each tribe was given an inheritance. You guys get from the river to that mountain. You guys get here and they split it all up except for the Levites. The Levites were a tribe, descendants of Aaron and Levi, who did not get any inheritance. They didn't get land. Well, that's how they made a living. There wasn't, you know, the, the stock market that they could invest in. They made a living by what they could grow or produce. They didn't have any of that. So the rest of the nation was supposed to support them and the work in the tent of meeting, which became the temple 
which may be like our local church, that's where they would go to worship. Their tithe went to support that, to administer the worship of everybody else to come, meet with God, learn about God, sacrifice to God. They were the facilitators of worship. That's what the tithe was for, to bring 10%. But they had turned away. They weren't giving a full tithe. They weren't giving their tithe. And remember, the issue here was they had a, a stance of kind of whatever to God, whatever. They did what looked good, but they didn't go to the heart. They were told to give a tenth. Think about this real quick. If your neighbor is going to sacrifice or somebody you know, do you know if they're giving a tenth? No. Only God knows. <coughs> Excuse me. Only God knows what a tenth would be of somebody's income or, or, or produce. And so that was something between them and God. They thought they could get away with it. Remember in the New Testament? when the early church was going and a lot of people were selling their land, taking the money and giving it to the church. And they're saying, yeah, we, we look at this. This is, most weren't doing it for appearance. They were doing it for God. They were selling and giving it. But two people, Ananias and Sapphira, a married couple, sold their stuff, sold a land, decided to keep some of it, but they wanted to look good. So they told them they gave everything and they brought it. And the apostles were standing there as Peter. And he said, so you sold the land for such and such a price. Is that right? Yeah, we did. And you brought it all? Yeah, we did. Okay. Boom, fell over dead. <laughs> we don't know, but God revealed to them that it wasn't all. So God cares about the heart. You guys are lying to God, fell over dead, brought in the wife a little bit later. Hey, your husband was here earlier, brought the sacrifice. He said it was such and such that you guys sold the land for and you're giving it all. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Fell over dead. <laughs> so to God, it's a big deal that we do what we say we're going to do. It's a big deal. And so these people were told to give 10%, but they weren't doing it. Others might not have known that they weren't doing it. They still looked religious. And what's, why is this where he goes? This is the heart issue that God hits first. When he talks about this part of it, he hits this first. You're robbing me because where our money is, there our heart is. I think somebody wise said that. Who was it? Maybe, oh, it was Jesus. <laughs> Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's something about money that is extremely personal, isn't it? Who wants to raise your hand right now and tell us how much you make a year? No, it's too personal. <laughs> Who wants to tell how much you give? No, no, and we don't wanna know. Don't do that. It's personal. That stuff is between you and God. It's, it's very personal and it's always been personal. And that's why he goes to that. You know, I've heard it said that the church talks too much about money. But as I've been studying this, I've actually been convicted somewhat that I haven't talked enough about money. <laughs> because if what we do with our money is evidence of our heart, then it's not the money that God needs, but it's a heart issue. And money shows our heart. So there's this thing I, I like to do um, and try and, okay. So we're at Disneyland five years ago or so. And if you know Tony Keel, some of you know Tony Keel, big guy, um, big beard. He was a football player in college, a lineman. Uh, could be intimidating if his smile wasn't so sweet. Well, I'm walking through Disneyland and he's walking along and he has his wallet open and he's looking at it. And I didn't even know Tony was there. I look at it. I'm like, that's Tony. And he doesn't see me because he's looking at his wallet. And I sneak up and I grab it. And the first thing he does is raise this big old fist like that. <laughs> and luckily he recognized me before the fist came down. But when I grabbed his money, he was going to get violent. And he's not a violent person. <laughs> he was going to get violent on me. Um, I would have been dead, yes. The candy dance. A couple years later, I'm at the candy dance down here. That's that big craft fair over here. And uh, 
Sherry's mom, Jan, was there walking through and she had her purse and her sister and her brother-in-law were there, if you know Sean and Laura. And they're walking through the candy dance and I sneak behind a tree. I don't know why I like to do this. It's hilarious. <laughs> and I sneak up and I grab her purse <laughs> like that. And of course she grabs it back and, you know, and Sean said his heart started beating and he, he was going to get me. Um, and then they, of course they recognize it's me. Oh, you're hilarious. Well, <laughs> A year later, we're in Disneyland again. We don't go that often. But anyway, we're at Disneyland again, and I'm walking along holding Elisa's hand. She's five, or she's five. Um, and Sean and Laura happened to be at Disneyland. And they knew we were there. I didn't even know they were there. And I'm walking holding Elisa's hand, and Sean sneaks up on me. And he grabs my kid and, and goes to run away. I didn't even skip a beat. I'm like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I held on, but, but I, I mean, my heart rate didn't go up at all. <laughs> it's like, uh, oh, hey, Sean. Um, now, Elise was in tears and freaking out. So Sean gave her a little Mickey pin and everything was okay. But when somebody goes for our money, we, you know, our heart rate gets up. Somebody goes for our kids, like, nah. <laughs> but, but you see, <laughs> maybe you're better than me. You probably are. <laughs> But you see, you see how money goes to our heart. Money goes to our heart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a fact, isn't it? It's a fact. If I want to know what somebody cares about, I'll say, show me where your money goes. I'll know what you care about. Is it a hobby? Is it your kids? Whatever it is, we'll know by where your money goes. And God says this, because you're not bringing it, you're cursed with a curse cursed with a curse. And he gets into it later. He says, bring it in, bring in the full tithe. And here's what I'll do. I'll get rid of the devour. I'll make your crops produce. So because they were not giving God their 10th, their best, he took away what was most dear to their heart. He took away their produce. He took away their money. He said, you're not giving me a 10th, so I'm going to take it away. And their response should have been, we got an issue here. Let's go to God. Let's give him what we, we owe him out of a heart of love um, and move on. But no, they probably worked harder. What? All these grasshoppers, you know, the locusts, they're, they're chewing up our fields. They're destroying it. Well, God sent those. <laughs> and instead of turning to God, they probably used pesticide or something. Um, I don't know what they used back then. But they didn't turn to God. So God hit them where their heart was because he loves them. Do you, do you get that? He wants our heart and it's best for us to have our heart turned to God because there's an eternity and it's coming and it's going to be amazing. It's going to be great. And even in this life, when our heart is fully submitted to Jesus, when our faith is fully in him, we have peace, we have joy, we have purpose. It's a much better life. I'm not saying we're going to be wealthy. This isn't, this isn't health and wealth gospel. Get that. But he says, if you do what I tell you to do, I will bless you. I will get rid of that. I'll make your crops produce. You know, I don't know what he had done. Maybe it was a drought, but their, their vines weren't giving him very many grapes. And he says, bring it all in. You're cursed because you're not, and I'll take care of that. Um, the best teaching we have in the New Testament. So how do we study the Old Testament? This is Old Testament. This is law. This is Old Testament law. Are we under the law now? No. <laughs> we are not under the Mosaic law. Are we commanded to give 10%? No, we're not. But what do you do when you study the Old Testament? 
You find the principle. In this passage we just looked at, God said, I don't change. So God doesn't change. So you find the principle being taught. You learn something about God, then you apply that now because God doesn't change. Most of the, all the principles that are taught in the Old Testament, they don't change. So take that principle to now, look in the New Testament, see if the New Testament addresses that same thing. And it does. Romans 8 and 9 is our best teaching, I think, on giving in the New Testament. And there, Paul lays out a couple things. And we, we studied this, I don't know, eight months ago. So we're not going to get into Romans 8 and 9. But he says, get, when you give, give generously. Give sacrificially. Give with a cheerful heart and not under compulsion. That's New Testament giving. Generously, sacrificially, it should cost you. With a cheerful heart. It's, it's a joy to you. It's not a duty. That's why he says not under compulsion. So if you're ever at a church service like this one or one other and you feel guilted into giving, don't give. <laughs> don't do it. If you're, oh, I feel guilty, we need to give, don't do it. Go, pray about it, see what God would have you do. Then maybe respond because God says, I want you to do it cheerfully. You should be skipping to the box when you put your check in. It shouldn't be like, oh man, <laughs> it should be a joy. It should be a joy. So that's New Testament talking about giving. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 8, 8, when he's telling them to give generously and sacrificially, it's not like the law where it's a command, okay? But he says this, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. He says it's not a command, but it's a proof if you love God. That's hard. Isn't that hard to hear? That's hard to hear. For me, that's hard to hear. He says, you don't have to do it. Do we have to do all this obedient stuff? No, but if we don't, we're proving we don't actually love Jesus. That's what he's saying. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard. And if you knew we were going to teach on this or this was the application, you might not have come today. But that's the truth. And like I said, sometimes we think, oh, the church talks too much about money. Jesus talked about money more than heaven, hell, salvation combined. Jesus talked about money more than all of that. Why? Because he wants our heart and he knows our heart is where our money is. The rich man came to Jesus, said, I want to follow you. He said, okay, obey the 10 commands. He said, I've done all that. I've done great. Then good, go sell all you have and follow me. Oh, that's too far. I can't do that. I can't do that. He hits us with the heart. He hits us at our heart. This is in your notes. One of the greatest ways a heart for God proves itself is through generous and sacrificial giving. Through generous and sacrificial giving. It's proof. So, just like in anything, you don't go out and just do it to earn something with God. Remember, our life isn't what we can do. The Christian life isn't what we do for God. It's Jesus living his life in and through us. So we don't just go do it hoping to earn a place with God. What did we see before? This is all a response to what the Messiah has done for us. Jesus died for you. He gave his life. So it's a response. You don't have to earn it. It's freely given. But it's a response. And now let's really get to the heart of it. As I was studying this, Relevant Magazine put out this study that the average American Christian gives 2.5%. The average American Christian gives 2.5%. Why is the North American continent the only place where the church is not growing? Because the North American church gives 2.5%. Because the North American church is good at religion, but their heart in large part is not to God. And it's proof that the average Christian gives 2.5%. I think that's evidence why the church in the North America is struggling so much. It's not a money issue. The church doesn't need more money. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. The hearts are not turned. 
to God. God does not need your money. God does not need your money. Do not understand that. And we were praying before the service that you would hear this. God doesn't need your money. Common ground doesn't need your money. This isn't, this isn't something so that we can pay for things we want. That's not it. God doesn't need your money, but he wants what it represents, your heart. He desires above all else what your money represents, your heart. Before we move on, I, I wanted just to give my conviction. Now, I struggled with whether I share this because it's not scripture. This isn't the Bible, but this is what Callie and I dealt with years ago, long before I was a pastor. What are we going to do with this? Here's where we arrived. We're going to give 10% to church. We're going to tithe to church. Then if, we, if God leads us to give elsewhere, we're going to give elsewhere also. A missionary, um, uh, a needy family that we come in contact with, that was our conviction. And so that's what we've strived to live you know, for a decade or so. 10% goes to church, then we can support others. Just like the Jews, they didn't give just 10%, they gave closer to 30. That's my conviction. But you need to figure out your conviction before God. You may decide you wanna give 5% to your church and 5% elsewhere. It doesn't matter what you decide. You may decide generous and sacrificial for you is 5%. And you have a goal to up it to 10 in the next year or two. Whatever it is, it's between you and God. It's between you and God. But, but it's a heart issue. Look at the heart. Absence of cheerful Christian giving is always a sign of spiritual decline. Hear that again. Absence of cheerful Christian giving is always a sign of spiritual decline. When I meet grumpy Christians that don't experience the joy of the Lord, often it goes hand in hand with they're not generous givers. I'll just be completely honest with you because they're, they stress about life and so they hold on to things. God asks his people to test him by giving consistently and God will prove himself faithful by blessing the giver. That's in verse 10. That's in verse 10. I had a, a church leader as we were moving toward planting um, who, who said, you know, watch people's giving. And I've chosen not to do that. The only person that really knows what everybody gives is the bookkeeper, Rhonda. And she doesn't even go here. <laughs> but she's the only one that sees what, what everybody gives. I don't see that. But I was told, watch what people give. And here's why. Because most people stop giving two or three months before they stop coming to church. And so follow the money. People's heart leaves first. They stop giving. Then they walk away from church. And if you can watch that and see that, then you can respond. You can go to them and help them turn their heart back to God before you lose them completely. I thought there's wisdom there. I'm not comfortable knowing what everybody gives. <laughs> so I'm not sure where we'll arrive on that. I don't want that. But that's the truth. That, so look at your own life. When you stop giving, we, that's an indicator for you. It's a barometer. It's a barometer of your relationship with God. Where are you at? And what does God say? He says, test me, test me and I'll bless you. Now here's the danger, listen to me. The danger is prosperity gospel. And I had a guy when I was 18 or so I was working with and he said he gave to the church, he gave whatever because then God would give more back to him. He's like, yeah, if I go give a dollar then God's gonna give me 10 back. I'm like, ooh, that's not a very good theology <laughs> and that's not a right heart. Seeing God as a good investment, that's not a right heart at all. But here's what, here's what it does say. He says, test me and see if I don't provide for you. 
you're not going to be homeless and hungry and naked because you give. He says, test me. And, and here's where, here's where I often want to go. Here's where pastors go. This is a spiritual blessing. And it is, it is a spiritual blessing, but it's also a physical blessing. It's not wealth. Let me, I, let me lay that very clear. It's not that you'll get rich by giving, but he says he will provide for you. That's exactly what he says. That's his application. And he says it again in the new Testament, Luke 6, 38. Luke 6, 38, he says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And this is a difficult thing, I'll be honest, because a lot of churches will take this and turn it into prosperity. Give so God can give back. That's not the heart. The fact is, though, that when we're generous, he's generous to us. He'll provide what we need. He'll provide what we need. You won't be destitute because you give. Is that, say amen if you get that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I want that to be clear because that's the hard part. No guilt. Okay. No laying that on, but it's a response. What you sacrifice to God proves what you truly think of God. The hope given in Malachi is the hope given to us, which is the hope of future, the hope of pure righteousness, the hope of what's coming, eternal salvation. But also the fear placed in Malachi is also the fear given to us. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And until then, how are we living? Does God have our hearts? And so here's the test. Where's our money? Where's our money? But again, it's all a response. Go back to the beginning. The first half of this message, the first half of this passage, it goes back to what he's done. Okay? It's based on a response to him. That's it. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to close in worship. We're going to close in worship like we did last week. We're going to close with a couple songs, but we're going to respond. One of the things that we're trying to get better at here is corporate worship, not just you watching worship. Does that make sense? Because worship is supposed to be us responding to God, not us watching a good band or listening to a so-so sermon or whatever. Um, that's not worship. Worship is us including. And so we are trying to look at how we can help you connect with God also and how we can connect with God together. So we're doing what we did last week. And this is, we let me admit it, it's weird. This is awkward. If you, are, if you grew up in a church like I did where you don't really respond much, this is going to be hard for you. But over here, we have this wall, praise and sacrifice. And we started it last week. If you didn't do it because you sat there going, this is weird, go do it. Try it. Respond to God. Respond to what Jesus has done for you. It's overwhelming. And write your praise on there. Write your praise. And then the response to that from the heart is the sacrifice. Last week, we focused on time, talent, and treasure. Our time, our talents, and our treasure. Today, we're focusing really just on treasure. But respond there. How, how will you sacrifice? What does God want you to do to give your best? Write that up there. If something else came to mind and you've already written up there, do it again. This is worship. This is us responding. We're also going to take the Lord's Supper. We're not handing it out like we do sometimes. So this is active. <laughs> so get up. If somebody next to you um, can't get up for whatever reason, go, bring it back to them. Ask them if they want it. Bring it back to them. But go over there. Take it right there. There's a, a trash can right there. So take the bread. Take the cup. The Lord's Supper is in remembrance of what Jesus did until he comes back. That's why we take it. We remember his death, the blood he spilt, his body broken. That's what we remember. And we do it until he comes back. So it's not only remembering what he did, but it's looking forward in hope to him coming back. And here's the conditions for communion. You have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord of your life and you deal with any sin in your life. Mainly relational sin. Mainly, if anybody has something against you, if you wrong somebody, go make it right before you take it. 
If they're not here, maybe don't take it and go make it right so next time you can't take it. But do it, so, so while we begin the first song, even examine your heart, pray to God, then go over, take the Lord's Supper in worship, remembering what he did. Right on that. And here's the last thing we're gonna do. Okay, and listen, because this is spooky. <laughs> I'm not kidding. We're gonna give you a response, to a chance to test God. And when I first heard this idea, I was very uncomfortable with it. You might be too. We're gonna give you a chance to test God. If you have never given, or you've never given generously and sacrificially, you've never given a full tithe, we're gonna give you the chance to test God. There are cards over here. Write your name and write that you wanna test God. Just write that on there. Fill out the card, fold it in half and put it in that box. For the next three months, our bookkeeper is gonna track your giving. We, we track it anyway for tax purposes. But in three months, meaning the beginning of December, if you can come back to us and go, you know what, I don't feel God has blessed me. I've given a 10% tithe and I have not been blessed. We're gonna give it all back. We're gonna give it all back. Now, when I first heard this, I thought, that's weird. But then I look at scripture and God says, test me. And then I look at myself in the mirror and God said, I've entrusted you to be a shepherd for me. This is my duty. <laughs> this is my duty for your good. We don't need your money, but God wants what your money represents your heart. So if you wanna test him, do it. Fill out that card, put it in there, and we're gonna track it. And here's one of the benefits. Paul was actually telling us about this. Uh, the church he was at in Arizona did this a lot. And he said, every time at the end, there were really cool stories of people who had never done it. And this was kind of a, a safe way to try it out. And at the end, they go, oh my goodness, look how God actually is faithful. And our trust goes from here to here when we trust God, when we actually see him show up. So let's close in worship and respond as you feel led, respond. Take the Lord's Supper. Even if you do only one of those three, take the Lord's Supper. That's the most important one. Let me pray real quick. Father, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus. This is, this is heavy stuff, um, but it's true and it's necessary. This is one of the difficult things to consider because where our treasure is, there our heart is also. Um, God, I ask, Holy Spirit, convict our hearts. God, if there's anybody here being convicted, but they feel compelled out of guilt, I pray that they would not test you. I pray that they would grab the card, take it home, pray about it, and put it in the offering box next week because we don't do these things out of guilt or compulsion. We do it out of a heart of love and sacrifice to you. So Holy Spirit, convict us. Fill us with peace if what we're doing is great. If we're doing what you want us to do, fill us with that peace, not a guilt to do more. But let us give you your, our best because we wanna see what you will do through us for this city and in our families. We love you so much, Jesus. It's all about you. In Jesus' name, amen.